When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to Space Boffins, the award-winning space podcast with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham in partnership with the Naked Scientists. This time, flexible spacecraft that could be dropped on the moon. I'll be reporting from inside America's National Space Weather Prediction Centre, space mascots and the lowdown on Sue's Space Challenge. Are we confident? Well, I'm confident that I will do it in under two minutes and I'm wearing a really good sports bra. And with that image in mind, our studio guests are space insurer David Wade, which means he's an avid follower of rockets and occasionally pays out millions of pounds when they don't work. And Vix Southgate, space writer, artist and proud champion of space mascot Cassie, who is also with us. I think you better describe Cassie for us. Cassie is a knitted hedgehog who wears a cape and has got plenty of badges from the space industry. What do you think of Cassie, David? Fantastic. It's, uh, it's a, a wonderful little creation and um, I'm a bit jealous of some of the badges, actually. Quite, quite a, like quite a sizable hedgehog, actually. Can, can, I pick, can I pick her up? Can, yeah. I, can I handle her? I love the silver oh, cape. Oh, the cape, the silver Uni cape. And Jack so on the you background. Imagine her flying through the ground. Rather big nose for a, for a hedgehog. Actually about the size of a loaf of bread, I would say. So quite a sizable, quite a chunky Yes. Chunky space hedgehog. There's a baby hedgehog on the studio table as well. That's Mini Cassie. Because main Cassie is so big, Mini Cassie had to be made smaller so she could go up on payloads like weather balloons and, and experiments like that. Oh, excellent. I think we'll hear definitely hear more about that later. Well, this year is supposed to be the solar maximum when the sun is at the peak of an 11-year cycle. But rather than a flurry of solar storms, sunspots, coronal mass ejections, eruptions and flares, well, there's been little evidence of increased solar activity. Still, that doesn't mean we should be complacent. Energy and particles spewed out by the sun can have a serious effect on the Earth. Although the Earth is protected by its magnetic field, this space weather can potentially disrupt satellites, power grids, GPS systems and aircraft communications. It could even kill astronauts in orbit. Space weather is now considered a serious threat to Earth by governments around the world. And I recently visited the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administrations, that's NOAA's, Space Weather Prediction Centre in Boulder, Colorado. Well, here in a darkened room surrounded by dozens of monitor screens displaying live images of the sun from spacecraft and telescopes, forecasters try to predict what's coming our way. I spoke to programme coordinator Bill Murta and first space scientist Joe Cunches. It is sort of daunting to look at all of these images and it's a little bit like the Louvre for space weather. And, and, but the forecasters here, of course, start at the sun and we want to understand 
where are eruptions most likely to occur. And, and in doing that, we look for strong magnetic fields and, and hot spots in the solar atmosphere. So the, the brunt of the imagery you see here is devoted to, to the source of it all, is looking at the sun, trying to understand, uh, you know, what are the conditions today, how likely is an eruption to occur, and when one does happen, then the question becomes, is, it, is the plasma, the outer solar atmosphere, coming towards the Earth? When is it going to get here? How strong is it going to be when it hits? And, uh, you know, very typical weather-like questions in terms of storm fronts or hurricanes or tornadoes, we have the same questions that come for space weather. So in the, the heart, really, of the National Space Weather Prediction Center, the compelling images around us really are on the walls. There's these stunning images from stereo spacecraft, these, these blue and yellow images, beautiful image in, in the centre showing this fireball of, of the sun. Talk me through the, the worst case scenario from something bad happening on the sun heading towards us to, to what actually happens and how it goes from here to, say, the, the airlines or the, the power companies or, or where it ends up. There would be a fast well-positioned coronal mass ejection that would be coming to the Earth. It would be going by the ACE satellite. The forecasters in this room would, number one, at the time of the eruption, they'd know about it. We would put out warnings and advisories to to the airlines, to the power companies, to the GPS community, to high-tech satellite operations and things like that. And what sort of timing are we talking about here? If you put that out, how long, how far away is that from hitting the Earth? In some cases, it's too late. The, the photons, the light from that eruption has already got here because you can't beat the speed of light. <laughs> so, so there are some things like high-frequency radio on the day side of the Earth has already been affected. By the time we tell them, they already know it. So uh, in another case, in terms of the radiation dose that can come, it may be 10 minutes, it may be 15 or 20 minutes. The, the accelerated particles in these kinds of events can travel 93 million miles almost at the speed of light. So what? So radiation issues at high latitudes in manned space flight. Communications at high latitudes for polar flights would be quickly affected. Fortunately, probably our largest customer base is, is affected by geomagnetic storm activity, the power grids, some other aspects of satellite operations, uh, pipelines, uh, for example, and, and again, the general public who wants to see the brilliant auroras. Because those CMEs take longer to get here, they may get, again, for a very fast one, they might get 12 hours in notice, or they may get two or three days' notice. And Bill, how seriously do they take that? Yeah, very seriously. Yeah, lots of different sectors use this information. I mentioned GPS used by so many different sectors. But we're talking about a couple. Aviation, for example. Joe mentioned that the airline's flying over the poles. They have a lot of them have specific thresholds. If we reach that threshold, they take action, very simply. So it would be just similar to, for example, the launch of a satellite, even uh, the, the spacecraft launch vehicle. They have specific thresholds. could be a thunderstorm within five miles of the field. Field or, or winds of 30 knots or greater. Well, if their space weather thresholds are crossed, uh, they'll postpone the launch of the spacecraft or reroute flights away from, from the, the polar regions. Now, the power grid are kind of a different animal, if you will, because the potential impacts 
on the nation and indeed the globe due to an intense and extreme geomagnetic storm has caught caught the attention of government leadership around the world. It's recognized by many that an extreme geomagnetic storm which can induce electrical current that flows into the power grid and right up into transformers potentially damaging the transformers could result, we know it can, it has resulted in blackouts but the suggestion is if we have an extreme event, we've had them in the past like 1859 we refer to it as the Carrington event and another extreme event in 1921 should one of them occur today the impact on the electric power grid could be by some accounts catastrophic meaning it could be it could result in a widespread blackout extending for not just hours or days or even weeks but maybe months or years why would that be well the, the for the extended outage the key issue is damage on transformers when we get power lines come down due to a nice storm, whatnot, we can recover once we fix the lines. It can take hours, and it's a nuisance. It takes days and whatnot. But picture if we damage dozens or even hundreds of our big transformers. These transformers are not something sitting out in the shelf in the shed out back. There is some of them as big as houses, and they're tailor-made in large part as well. So to get them replaced would take an extended period of time. So that's kind of the key distinction is should a, 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 this phenomenon cause or create damage on transformers, the impact could be long-term. Joe, this is a a national centre, but this is clearly an international issue. You're right. This, I mean, we, we're just a small planet <laughs> and, and not terribly far from our nearest star. And I think, you know, we've, we've all come to the realization that the, the variability of the sun and the eruptiveness of the sun really does count and, and, and require a constant, vigilant, well-placed service, a global service, so we can, you know, be ready when the sun erupts and, and take action to mitigate problems should they occur. Joe Cunches and Bill Murta talking to me at the Space Weather Prediction Centre in Boulder, Colorado. And I should just thank Bill for all his help in setting up the various interviews that I did at uh, Denver and Boulder. Turns out to be a really interesting space centre. In fact, after California, the second largest centre for space in the US. Who knew that? Uh, More from there in the coming months. We'll also put some pictures of the centre on Facebook, Twitter and on our blog at spaceboffins.com and spaceboffins.co.uk. Our studio guests are space writer and mascot-loving Vic Southgate and Dave Wade, or David Wade, if I want to be uh, <laughs> a bit formal, underwriter for the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, which has supported the Space Boffins podcast from the very beginning, even before we were the award-winning Space Boffins podcast. So we thought it was about time we uh, had you on, David. <laughs> now, we've just heard a piece about potential problems. What are the most likely causes of a satellite failure? Well, you've just heard Bill and Joe talk about the coronal mass ejections there and what they can cause is charging on the spacecraft's surface. And if you've got different materials, different parts of the spacecraft can charge up to different levels. And when they charge up to different levels, you suddenly get an arc, a discharge form. And where that arc hits the spacecraft, it can cause some very localised heating, very localised damage. We we see regularly these problems. Um, on the insurance side, something like 20% of the anomalies that we see on spacecraft are due to space weather. Now, there's not many claims that come out of those. They cause a lot of problems, but most of those problems can just be reboot the element of the spacecraft and off you go again. It doesn't cause a permanent uh, outage. 
but in about 3% of the cases, our claims are due to space weather effects. I'm quite surprised, actually, that figure, one in five problems on a satellite due to space weather, because you do tend to think, or I do anyway, that they're not quite crying wolf, but almost, <laughs> because, yes, you know, there's always this reference to the Carrington event, and there was um, in 1989, yep. um, space weather caused most of Quebec's power to, to go. But because you don't hear of it very often in the news in terms of how it has taken down satellites, you do tend to think it's a bit like preparing for an asteroid strike. Uh, it, it's it's something that could happen, but the chances are quite small. It is. Uh, the chances are very small. And for us, it really does represent that kind of um, very low frequency, but incredibly severe event when it does happen. Uh, yeah, we know it happens. 1859, the Carrington event, 1921. We haven't actually seen any major events during the space age. 1989 was a large event. We saw another large event in 2001. We haven't seen these extreme events during the space age. So nobody really knows whether our spacecraft are designed sufficiently well to withstand that extreme event when it does occur. What about uh, the launches? Because I know your previous job, which is where we first met, you were at the University of, of Kingston, you were lecturing in, in sort of effectively, you're practically a rocket scientist, <laughs> lecturing in, in rocket um, technology. In terms of ensuring a launch, do you have like odds on for an Ariane 5 versus a Soyuz versus a, a Proton? Not with regard to space weather. I mean, from an insurance point of view, space weather is one of those factors that we have to take into account. But because it's quite a low frequency, it doesn't really factor in into the figures significantly. The other factors that do come into play are things like the reliability, the manufacturing quality. We're seeing a huge number of problems out of Russia right now. A lot of their launch vehicles are failing. There was one failed at the beginning of this month in a very dramatic style that was shown on the TV at the time. And what we're seeing really is that there's a whole range of people retiring from the industry. You know, the space industry grew up in the 1960s. Those people have now hit retirement age and they've been replaced by younger people without the experience. We've the heard that before, actually, from quite a, a, a few people that, that we've met have all said the same, which is, is yeah. quite worrying, isn't uh, it, it? It is, Particularly from my point with of this, view. this new burgeoning <laughs> commercial space industry. Does that mean then that space travel is actually going to get riskier? Well, I think for a while we've certainly gone to see certain vehicles become more risky because there is such a large swath of the industry retiring. There's something like 25% of the US aerospace workforce right now that are eligible for retirement. So quite large quantities of the uh, of the workforce about to disappear overnight. So is this a Russian problem or an American problem or both? It's, it's actually a problem worldwide. Um, but I think the problem is more acute in Russia because they don't have the quality control standards that we do in the West. I mean, to give you an example, this, this proton failure from the 2nd of July, when they've gone and investigated that, it turns out that one of the gyroscopes was mounted upside down on the rocket. And that's a pretty fundamental mistake to make. Uh, it should have been caught during inspection. It wasn't. That's a clear sign that uh, the quality control procedures are, are lacking. Wow. How much does it cost then? Are you allowed to tell me to ensure a <laughs> Yeah, so we have a rocket. Or a... Let's say we have the Space yeah. Boffins rocket. Yeah. OK, Space Boffins rocket. Let's say, what, $200 million um, for the satellite. Yeah, we got that in small change. Yeah, I mean, what, what we're actually paying for here is, is, the, is the satellite, the replacement of the satellite. But also as part of the insurance, you would also insure yourself for the replacement launch service, so the cost of the launch service. And then you also add on the cost of in, the insurance premium into that. But typically on a good Western rocket, something like an Ariane with a good Western-built satellite, you're looking at uh, figures of something like, well, somewhere between 7 and 10% of the sum insured. So on a 200 million sum insured, 
a premium of about uh, 14 to 20, 20 million dollars. So can you give us a written quote? I mean we might have to go elsewhere and get some other quotes as well. We do have a we do have yeah. a satellite, don't we? Albeit a very little pocket tiny, sprite. Tiny, yeah. tiny, tiny satellite. Yeah. Well you really should be considering third party liability insurance in that case, because of course you pose a risk to other people up there. And if you if you were to strike somebody else, that's uh, uh You've yeah, got that, into salesman yeah. though, yeah. haven't Absolutely. you? Well, you really should consider this. Where this where we're what what about these commercial space planes though? What about this new generation of well, are they are they spacecraft or are they are they planes like the the X core plane or the the Virgin Galactic space plane? They go into space, but they they kind of just come back straight back down again. It's a hybrid technology, and I can't really think of many examples that are that are hybrid in in much the same way. Um, so, how do we classify them from an insurance perspective? It's 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 undecided at this stage. Both the space insurance market and the aviation insurance market is, is looking at those vehicles. From my point of view, I you, you really do have to consider whether it's an aeroplane with a rocket engine strapped to it or whether it's a rocket with wings. My point of view, I think you've got to look at the weakest link in the chain. The weakest link in the chain is usually the highest technology on board. And to me, that's the rocket engine. We've seen time and time again how sensitive the rocket engines are to a minor deviation in quality control. And that, to me, is the key element here. And that that's the bit that should be driving the rate. It's a little bit too early for the insurance market, though. Uh, you know, we're still a year away from the first commercial flight. We're still sort of seeing the test flights go on. So it'll be once uh, once those are complete that they'll come to the insurance market. Well, thanks, Dave. We'll consider your quote. This is the uh, Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And if you're a regular listener to Space Boffins, you'll know that some time ago, as Sue mentioned, we bought ourselves a spacecraft. Now, it is tiny. It's the size of a couple of postage stamps. But this sprite is due to fly in space sometime in the next six months. It's part of Kicksat, the first crowd-funded spacecraft. Well, we'll continue to follow its progress, but in the meantime, there's an even more ambitious mission being promoted on the Kickstarter website. You can pledge money for a mission to the moon to be known as a pocket spacecraft. Michael Johnson, founder of Pocketspacecraft.com, is behind the project and told me what it involves. We start off by launching something called a CubeSat. So this is a spacecraft about the size of a loaf of bread. It's 30 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres, less than 5 kilograms in mass. We'll launch that probably into something called a GTO orbit, a geosynchronous transfer orbit, that comes in as close as 200 miles to the surface of the Earth and as far out as about 20,000 miles or so. Inside that, we have a couple of thousand thin film spacecraft. So these are spacecraft that are about the size of a CD, but they're very thin. They're 50 microns, about a 20th of a millimetre. And the idea is that when we've launched this CubeSat into GTO orbit, we'll drop off about half these thin film spacecraft into the Earth's atmosphere. Because they're so thin and they're relatively light, they'll actually flutter all the way from orbit to the surface of the Earth like leaves falling from a tree. And that's really exciting. That allows us to take measurements in the upper atmosphere that couldn't be done any other way. The other exciting thing is, because we get all the way down to the surface in one piece, if we did this somewhere like Mars, then, for example, we could drop a sensor network all over the surface of Mars without having to have a big parachute and rockets and things like that to do the landing. So this is one side of it. You've got these fluttering down to Earth, and then your CubeSat's heading for the Moon. That's right. So we have a propulsion system that takes up about two-thirds of the CubeSat. 
And over the course of the year, this propulsion system is engaged and the orbit is raised higher and higher until we achieve what's called ballistic capture by the Moon. And then we go into something called an unstable low lunar orbit around the Moon. Once we're in that orbit, we'll deploy the rest of the thin film spacecraft. All these spacecraft have got their own little science missions, so they'll take measurements in orbit around the Moon. And then over the course of a few weeks or maybe months, they'll do their mission and then they'll impact on the surface of the Moon. So just like big spacecraft, when they finish their end-of-life mission, they dispose of themselves by crashing into a well-known place on the Moon. We do the same thing, and then that's the end of the mission. Now, you've got one of these individual a spacecraft within a spacecraft Uh, and it really is the size of a CD smaller than a CD actually and can I pick it up yeah and it's just very thin very thin film and it's really going to be that thin yes so I have the actual materials that will be made out of a a functioning one they're very fragile uh, so I didn't bring one along today but basically the main uh, material in it is something called Kapton and this is material that's used in spacesuits, in solar sails and in flexible printed circuit boards so this is a widely used material so basically you end up with a device that has an average thickness of about 50 microns in total so that means we can get 20 per millimetre and uh, that means we can pack a few thousand into the third of the CubeSats that we have available to store them. And what about the cost? If you want to have one of these or sign up for the project with the, the potential of having one of these, what's it going to cost? How does it break down? So the way we've designed it is because we're using print electronics, almost everything about these spacecraft is customizable. So we have a standard design. So if you just want to have a thin film spacecraft in space, then we can do that for £99. So if you back the project for £99, you'll get your own spacecraft in space. You can choose the design that's printed onto the surface of it. It will have our standard electronics and will be running our standard scientific software. But it will be your spacecraft and it will do its experiment and send data back to you. That will be one of the ones that goes into the Earth's atmosphere and comes back. If you uh, spend £199, then you can have two, one that comes back to Earth and one that goes to the Moon. So if you want to go to the Moon, we can send your own spacecraft to the Moon for £199. We also have shared spacecraft, so if that's too much, uh, we have the ability that if you have, say, a Facebook profile or a picture of a loved one or something like that, you can uh, put that picture on the surface of a shared spacecraft from £19. But fundamentally, these are personal spacecraft. The idea is that we wanted to make something that's roughly the cost of a nice birthday present, and then you decide how far down the customization you want to go. So is this a new era, if you like, or are we entering a new era of, of personal spaceflight, of, of everyone being able to be involved, if they want to be, in space? Absolutely. What I like to say is that there's a need for personal spacecraft because we're entering the personal space age. So I hope this is the beginning of the personal space age. The personal space age, eh? Michael Johnson, founder of Pocketspacecraft.com. You can find the project on the Kickstarter website and you have until August the 26th to pledge money towards the £290,000 target. Um, That doesn't include the launch. They'll be hoping to get the launch for free. Now, it may sound a lot, but as we've heard from from Dave earlier, that is a fraction of the cost of a multi-million pound commercial or NASA or, or ESA mission. We'll put a link to the mission on our Facebook page and on our blog. What do we think around the table? I think Vic's looked very excited (laughs) at the thought of putting a personalised picture. I wonder what you would be putting a personalised picture of on your spacecraft. Would it be Cassie by any chance? Yeah, I I think that a knitted hedgehog on a a spacecraft would be quite good. It's very Harry Hill, isn't it? It's brilliant. What, What did occur to me, though, was 
a lovely image when he said of them floating down. It sounded like a ticker tape parade. But my first thought was litter. Well, in in space, the debris point of view as well. I mean, there's already 18,000 pieces of debris bigger than a tennis ball being tracked. You know, smaller than a tennis ball, we're looking at millions of pieces of debris up there and they pose a risk to other spacecraft up there. Presumably, um, if they're going to get a launch free from maybe on the, one of these NASA launches where they launch these CubeSat missions, they would have to take those sorts of things into account, wouldn't they? They would. I mean, there are standard design guidelines now which say that your spacecraft should re-enter the atmosphere within 25 years, um, but nobody polices these things. So whether or not anybody would ever be fined, you know, it also gets into... But they would burn up, that, that small and that thin. Well, that's what we say, they, they would wouldn't burn, burn up. They, they would actually well, flutter down. But the, the CubeSat would, wouldn't yes, they? Yes, yeah, yeah, but it, it's it's the period that they're in space, though, that they still that cause the risk. The, the um, risk. You know, there's, uh, there's a huge amount of junk up there, which uh, which is a real problem for the industry going forward. It's quite cool, though, isn't it, this this sort of thing? And it's it is. I mean, why shouldn't, why shouldn't people <laughs> do this? And it's a pound upwards, we, we should say. Yes, if you, you go can to do the website, you can actually donate a pound, but I would advise you not to, because that will take them ages. <laughs> to get, but you can go a pound, nine pound, nineteen pounds, and and so on upwards, and actually contribute to ninety nine pound for your own one. I mean, gosh, I think we, I know. I we said to Richard, we, yeah. I said to Richard beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Well, shall we put? Should we do twenty quid towards it? But then, right, you hear that and you think, oh no, just buy one, just buy one. <laughs> but isn't this era cool, Dave? I mean, I know you're you're from the commercial perspective yeah. on this. I mean, it's not our fault now that there's so much space debris. It's the legacy of the space. Agencies. Uh, yeah, we have to deal with it, though. It's not our fault that the polar ice caps are melting, but we have to deal with it. That's that's the concern. I, I think it is cool. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm as big a space fan as everybody else, and this kind of stuff that inspires people to come into the industry is fantastic. But I just think we need to keep an eye on, uh, on, the, on the environment going forward. The space environment is just as important as the Earth's environment. And what about dropping these on the moon? I mean, it sounds feasible. It sounds great. It sounds really ambitious. I, I don't know enough about the project, but yeah, absolutely. It sounds feasible. I mean, if they can enter into the Earth's atmosphere, there's no reason why they can't fall onto the moon. Take a little bit longer to do. Um, but uh, again, do we want to pollute these historic sites that we have on the moon that we might want to go to visit one day? Uh, yeah, but it, as I say, I'm, I'm all for inspirational projects, but uh, yeah, I think we just have to keep an eye, an eye on the environment. Now, talking about inspirational projects, I have some news. Uh, you'll remember that we've been following Strand 1, the first phone in space. Well, we were following it. What happened was it was launched on February the 25th. Then it all went quiet, literally went quiet. It stopped transmitting on March the 30th during the commissioning phase, which explains why no one was replying to my email saying, what's going on with this marvellous spacecraft you got? Well, now it is back. They've just received, uh, in the last couple of weeks, a signal from a German amateur satellite enthusiast, picked up a signal from it on the uh, 23rd of July, and now it's being picked up on every pass around the Earth. So Strand 1 is once again operating, but they've got to do the whole testing and commissioning phase, start again with that. We will keep you posted, and uh, we'll be following progress on Facebook, Twitter, and on our blog. Have I mentioned that enough now, do you think? <laughs> No, obviously not. Um, let's turn to VIX now. We've, we've sort of briefly touched upon Cassie. Cassie actually stands for something, though, doesn't it? It does. Cassie stands for Cosmic Ambassador for Space Science and Engineering. And it's more than a knitted character, let's put it that way, because 
Cassie as as Cassie actually well I've seen Cassie pictured with Tim Peake and various astronauts far by your um, Twitter feed and what have you but th- there is definitely a connection in terms of one of these mini Cassie and Cassie has been into space already or pretty much near to space uh, yeah uh, mini Cassie went up to uh, the edge of space with a, a school project which was the Queen Mary's Grammar School in Warsaw. And they got in touch via Twitter and said, you know, we're interested in Cassie. Could you, could we send her up on our balloon with our experiment? That's why we have a mini Cassie is for those experiments because big Cassie is too big for for the payload. So, um, so mini Cassie went up on the sixth of July so, and uh, came back. We've got an astronaut in the studio. <laughs> so mini Cassie is an astronaut. Fantastic. Now you illustrated a, a, a lovely book, Yuri Gagarin, the first spaceman. Now, did that result from your love of space, or was it the other way round? Because you're an artist, did you get asked to do it and then think, "Wow, this space stuff's cool"? Which came first? The artist came first, and. I've been interested in space most of my life and my, my brother works in astronomy and, and astrophysics so I've understood about space quite a long time but then I was actually asked or I, I was told to, to write a book about Yuri Gagarin and that it would be a good idea because of the 50th anniversary in 2011 and so I went out and started researching Gagarin and that's where my love of space came from because before then... I had no personal knowledge of it. It was all through my brother. And so now I've I've got a very specialist knowledge of Yuri Gagarin and I love everything space now. That's great. <laughs> you know, what gave you the idea for a space mascot? Because it's not something I've really heard of before. I was on Twitter and it was a very surreal conversation because I was talking to a rubber chicken from NASA and a stuffed eaglet from the US Forces Academy through Twitter. And they are both mascots for the US Forces Academy and for NASA's SDO, which we... Who knew? <laughs> and the um, the rubber chicken, Camilla Corona, actually goes up on weather balloons to the edge of space and looks at the sun. Um, and, and they were saying it would be great if the UK had a space mascot of their own. And so next thing I know, NASA had been in touch with the BBC. I'd got a phone call and I was doing a radio interview to try and figure out what the creature would be if we had a space mascot. It went out on a local radio station as a competition and came back and they all said, a hedgehog, that's typically UK, it's an indigenous species, you know. It's lovely for kids. And and so then they got their resident knitter, Jennifer Dunham, to, to knit it. Can we have a space boffins badger? I'd love a badger, a badger, a badger mascot. It's, it's bizarre though. I can see whether UK indigenous a hedgehog, but hedgehog, prickly, prickly spikes isn't necessarily one you'd want wrapped in a little bit of you know astronaut spacesuit, is it? You don't put the two together. It's bizarre, but but I suppose you could say that's very typically British, isn't it? It's a, it's a little bit Monty Python with a touch of yeah. What do we have for the UK? A hedgehog. In space, and you mentioned, um, I suppose, Cassie's relative, really. This uh, this rubber chicken, and that's the space weather connection. It is, yes. The um, Camilla Corona SDO, as she was known on Twitter, she's now retired from NASA and is just a STEM mascot, which is the science, techni- technology, engineering, and mathematics. And rubber chicken's retired from NASA. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Do do continue. Um, 
We were discussing on Twitter about how to get STEM into schools, how to encourage the really young children who've not really started with science at school and learning and and how to inspire them to want to learn about science. And so that's where Cassie's come from, really. And how successful has has our knitted cosmic hedgehog been in schools? At the moment, I've been trialling her in my local schools and in my daughter's school, and kids love it. You know, nobody's intimidated by a knitted hedgehog. Yes. You know, you, you can't scare somebody with a knitted hedgehog that's wearing a cape. It's it's impossible. And and the thing is, I've not met any adults yet who don't want to hold it and cuddle it and want to do something with and it. It's quite a celebrity. Dave, would you like to just yeah. cuddle? Yeah, I can see. Look, I can see you wanting to. Across there, you go. You can cuddle. And and how many Cassie. how many celebs has Cassie met? Because I know you do like doing the photo bombing with Cassie. Oh, yes. Um, she has met quite a few, far more than I was expecting, because um, she's not even a year old yet. Um, and she's met Tim Peake, as you mentioned earlier. She's been over and trained with Tim Peake at the um, European Astronaut Centre for two weeks, <laughs> of course spoken to the ISS. <laughs> so, you know, she's, she's quite a celebrity now, and it's that celebrityism... Is that a word? Of oh, who cares? <laughs> it now. Um, it's it's that celebrity that I want to take into the schools to inspire the kids. You know that if a knitted hedgehog can do it and work within the space industry, so can they. You know, Excellent. we've got to do. We've got to do a knitted character. We've got yeah. to have a space boffin's knitted character. Dave, haven't you got a knitted rocket? I do have a knitted rocket. I do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I do. It was uh, present for one of my children. But uh, on that point, I mean, I, I went in to speak to my my son's uh, school class not that long ago, and a, a bunch of sixty five year olds absolutely loved hearing about space. It is an inspirational subject. Excellent. Speaking of space, a few weeks ago... Well, we're obviously, we're speaking of space. Oh, it's yeah. a Space Boffins <laughs> podcast. Well, OK, yeah, I'll stop him. Mm-hmm. Well, a few weeks ago, I took part in the Lynx National Space Challenge, a competition offering 22 astronaut places on a new space plane. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I decided to take part after interviewing Kate Arkless gray about the inequalities of the competition, which targeted men and even banned women from entering in eight countries. Well, there were 87,000 entrants in the UK and Ireland. I got through to the final 250 who had to complete a space-themed inflatable assault course, similar to that used in the army, in under 35 seconds to stand a chance. Well, here's a flavour of what went on. My name's Emily Jenkins. I did something called the Space Olympics when I was 17. Always been interested in space. I got my pilot's licence when I was 21. Just push yourself and keep going if you've got a dream. My name's Irena Bodrum. I live in Cambridge. I teach mathematics to the undergraduates at the university. I really want to encourage interest in science and in mathematics. My name is Leah Harlow and I'm from Leighton Buzzard. I probably want to go into space more than everyone else. <laughs> I never thought the opportunity would ever come, but this is an opportunity. And when this came up, I thought, go for it. I've just spotted my husband and son here, Matthew and Richard. Matthew, how do you feel about your mum taking part in this? Scared. Why? Well, they all look really young. Thank you for that vote of confidence. Rich? They do look quite young. I don't know why I brought you two. I really do. <laughs> How's it going to do, guys? 
Number 51 is about to go. I am number 54, so just three more to go. 40 behind me is Kate Oculus Gray, who's made it her mission in life to try and get into space before she's 40. Kate, these odds must seem astronomically good if you excuse the pun they would be I'm, I'm a bit concerned that none of the girls have managed to do this in the times that it looks like you might need to get through it might be weighted towards the boys well, I'm going to give it all my, my all stewards inquiry then at the end perhaps I, I would think so <laughs> are we confident? well I'm confident that I will do it in under two minutes and I'm wearing a really good sports bra <laughs> I like this cadet She's funny. Guys, let's get behind her and let's give her all the support as she goes through this song call, guys. This is for Valentina Tereshkova. Come on, Sue. Come on, Sue. So she, she was aiming for a target of sub two minutes. I think she's going to do better than that. She's on a time of two and 30 seconds. Sue, you can do it. This is for all the space boffins out there. I just need to go and give Sue a kiss because she's my favourite. Well done, Sue. Oh, I actually feel quite tearful listening to that. Um, needless to say, I didn't get through, sadly. And it wasn't just me who found it tough. No women got through to space camp in Florida from the UK. But congratulations to Nadav Eldar, Joshua Ratcliffe, Oliver Knight and Jocelyna Rodriguez who um, are going there. And huge kudos to Casey Williams. She was the only woman who got through to the finals on the Sunday and just missed out on her place. Mind you, she sounded superhuman. 23 years old, professional stunt woman, did sort of snowboarding and, you know, unit free running so pretty fit and amazing and was so close and a special hello to the lovely dominic lewis he's a nurse from norfolk whose wife had given birth at midnight that night so he'd been at the birth and then came at six in the morning to to take part um he didn't get through either but we loved him well we i mean we were really impressed with what you what you did matthew and i when we watched you do it and I think it was a pretty positive experience on the day, wasn't it? I mean, all the controversy beforehand, actually, I think everyone got into it and everyone enjoyed it and everyone was really supportive. That's right. They were especially supportive of the women. That doesn't excuse the fact that, yes, that course did favour men. It was so tough, physically, physically tough. And I think the fault probably is a combination between Unilever and also even the company that, you know, went into the deal with Unilever because they knew if you're aiming at a male grooming products, you're going to get the male. Why didn't they, Unilever, actually do Impulse, which is specifically a spray aimed at women? Why not split it so that you had one day for women, one day for men? That would have been so much fairer, so much easier. You'd still have the branding for your two different products. So, yeah, but on the day, they were they We were really are good. still thinking of a sensu into space.com. 
I thought it was send my wife into space. Well, it, it was said. that, yes. I, maybe we should register that. <laughs> that's a brand name. And uh, that's the uh, Space Boffins podcast. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, ABSL Space Products, and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. Thank you very much to uh, Dave and Vix, our guests this time. We're in partnership with the very nice people at The Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and spaceboffins.com. We'll be back next month with David Southwood from University College London, who's also the former head of science at the European Space Agency. Thanks for listening.